If you make a commitment and then you do nothing about it, then your commitment doesn't mean much. It really turns out to be rather meaningless without follow-through. That's how, really, that's how it is with our commitment with God. If we commit our lives to him, we, we say with our mouths that Jesus is our Lord when we're 6 or 46 or 86, and then our commitment has no follow-through, then it shows something about what that commitment is like. And it really reminds us of the book of James that where it talks about how faith without works is dead. The same principle of if our commitments, if our faith has no follow-through, has no fruit to it, then it shows the deadness of it. And this morning as we look at Nehemiah 13, as we finish our study of Nehemiah this morning, that's where the people are following God. They've made this commitment to him in the last few chapters, and they've been really started out fairly well. They've been following him for roughly 12 years from the time Nehemiah came until we read in this passage where he went back to the king and gave a report. And in those 12 years, they've, they've been renewed, they've been restored in a lot of ways, even though it's taken a lot of work and taken time. And we see that in this passage, and really even just that timeline's instructive to us, that a lot of times we like things to happen quickly and on our timeline, and when we make a commitment to God, we want things to be different right away, but oftentimes it, it is a process. It takes time to grow, to be established in our faith, to flourish, and we see that here in Nehemiah, that even if it takes 12 years for us individually or as a church to grow in health, then that's okay, and that's where the people are at here, but when Nehemiah goes away, then, while he's away, they start to fade on their commitments in following the Lord. And that's our passage this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Nehemiah 13. Uh, if not, it will be on the screen as well. Nehemiah 13, the word of the Lord says this. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, 
And I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zachar, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers." Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them in the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on our city Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them, And said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves." Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. 
and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Amen. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his word this morning. So Nehemiah is there for 12 years. He goes back to the king. He's gone for a little bit of time, and then he comes back. And when he comes back, we read in this passage that he finds the people have drifted into their former ways. They have gone back on the commitments they've made. And really, drift may be even too soft to say, because even when we drift, we are rebelling against the Lord, even if we're not consciously doing it. It's sin nonetheless, and we're responsible for it. So even when I say drift, that doesn't make it less of an offense to God. But we see in this passage what the people were doing and how they had wrongly forsaken God. They let the outsiders into the assembly. Then they ended up doing the right thing and separating them from the foreigners. They let the foreigners and an enemy himself live in the temple grounds, Tobiah. He made his residence in the house of God. And that was connected to them also not providing for the needs of the Levites because he was in the place where they were supposed to be storing the goods to distribute to the people. So there was a connection there. But then Nehemiah's leadership comes back. He kicks out Tobiah and they restore that. They dishonor the Sabbath again. Another thing that Nehemiah addresses. They, last but not least, they intermarry with foreigners that they had made a commitment to be separate from. And even the grandson of the high priest, who's going to be in line to be the high priest one day, he marries a foreigner and is thus uh, desecrating the priesthood, as it says, that he's supposed to be focused on serving God, and here he is being drawn away to serve foreign gods, the one who's in line to lead the people spiritually. And so Nehemiah comes back, and he finds, really, he finds all this a lot going on in this passage. It's a mess in a lot of ways. But he comes in and he addresses it. And this is what he was trying to correct. And just like the people of God back then had all these things, all these temptations that they were dealing with, that they were facing and falling back into, really today as the people of God, we face many of the same things, that we still have to be diligent to not stray in these ways. And before we really get into the details of that, we need to make sure that we know how this passage, really how any passage in the Old Testament applies to us as the people of God. Because, I mean, we can read this passage is written to Israel. We're not Israel, right? And so we're not under the Old Testament law. And yet notice in verse 1 how these people are described. It calls them the assembly of God. And that word assembly, the same word in the Old Testament, that's used for the word church in the New Testament. This is the same word. Uh, church isn't used in the Old Testament, but whenever Jesus says, I will build my church, this passage and other passages are really the passages he has in mind. As the, the Hebrew word was translated into the Greek word for church. So really when we read passages like this, we read other passages. That's why we are shouldn't think about the church now as being totally disconnected and separate from the people of Israel in the Old Testament because it's described in the same way. It's used the same words to describe both. It's not that the church replaces Israel, but we read in Romans 11 about how we're 
grafted into the olive tree, where the, the church becomes a part of true Israel, to use the words of Romans 11. And so because we have the same faith as Abraham and all the saints in the Old Testament, we are the people of God. And so that's why this passage is a warning to us and applies to us, albeit in different ways as the New Covenant people. But it's still relevant to us. And so that's how we think about the Old Testament. And as we read about these issues that the people of Nehemiah are having, uh, really we face a lot of the same things today. Right? They let foreigners into the assembly For us, we have to make sure and be careful that people who are in the church, in the assembly, are actually believers, right? So this prohibition against foreigners isn't about God just caring about one ethnicity. Really, it's about the the purity, the holiness of worshiping God, that everyone there needs to believe in God, needs to be following him. And we read this in Revelation that one day, People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne. So we know that God's not focused in on on one specific ethnicity to only save them, but people from Mexico, Nigeria, Russia, Argentina, and even the people from Texas will be gathered around the throne one day for all eternity. And that's why we're called to love each and every one of them because we will be with them for eternity. Right? And so when God says to be separate, he's, he's not telling, uh, he's not really applying this specifically on ethnic lines, but he's saying, listen, this is maintaining the purity and holiness of the church, of making sure the people who are in the assembly are actually following God so you don't get drawn away from worshiping him. You're supposed to be distinct as the people of God. That's what this means. So how do we see this in the church today? Really, uh, we see it in several ways drawn from this passage. Uh, One is the idea of not being like the world means we pay attention to how we accept members into the church, right? If, If the church is supposed to be made up of believers, that means that we need to at least make sure people believe in Jesus and hear their testimony and what they believe before they join the church. That's, uh, That's something that often takes some time, not a super long time, but it takes more than a minute or two. And so uh, I usually try to say whenever we have our time of response, if you'd like to learn more about what it means to know Jesus or what it means to join the church, I'll be here to start that conversation during that time. And so if you come forward during that time and you want to know, hey, what does it mean to follow Jesus or what does it mean to join the church, uh, just know If I haven't talked to you before about it, then I'm probably going to ask if there's a time we can sit down and I can just hear your testimony and we can hear what do you believe. Because we want to make sure that this is what we're doing as a church, that everyone here believes the gospel, that everyone is committed to following God. We know from the Bible that our task is to, to make disciples who make disciples who love God and love neighbor. That's our task. We all want to be pulling in the same direction in that, and so we have to make sure we believe the same. Uh, on a personal level, when we apply it to ourselves, and we see this in this passage, they intermarried with foreigners. I mean, the idea to us is that we only marry people who believe in the same God and the same way of salvation that we do. We find that command in the New Testament, to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
And frankly, in our area, one of the biggest ways we apply that is to not marry a Catholic. I've said that before, I'll say it again, but that is how we've seen that as we're in a heavily Catholic area, right? Uh, If you want to think more about that, right now we're looking on Wednesdays about the differences between Catholics and Christians, but we really do see in Catholicism a different gospel, a different way of salvation. And so if we want to be committed to following the Lord, we need to make sure that the people we marry are committed to following that same path, the same God, the same way of salvation. That applies to lots of different other ways as well, not just Catholics, but lots of other ways. But that's a specific one for us. But another way in this passage that Nehemiah reminds us that the church is today supposed to be focused on not really ourselves, but on the house of God, taking care of the house of God and the people of God, right? Because we see in this passage, really, they're focused on themselves. They're not focused on taking care of other people. They're not focused on taking care of the, the house of God, the literal house of God, the temple. They're letting it fall into disrepair. They're not taking care of the people working there. And so, really, we are reminded that we live in a culture that's heavily consumer-based. It's not unique to our culture. I mean, most cultures are really generally focused on themselves more than other people, right? And so we want to make sure that as the people of God, we remember that we're called to not just look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others, to take care of the, the church, the people, not the, the building per se, but the people of God, because that's who the house of God is. They needed to take care of the house of God. We need to take care of the house of God, the people of God. Uh, We think about our church building, right? Our church building could be taken away. It almost did get taken away a few years ago in the hurricane. We had damage. Uh, If the Lord wills, there may be another hurricane that comes, hits again, right? It's uh, just like our lives are a vapor and a mist that can pass away, so are buildings. Uh, Apart from hurricanes, we know that just expenses of having a large building are high, Just the insurance has doubled over the past three years, right? There are lots of things uh, applying or connecting to the building, but this passage reminds us that even though the building gives us a sense of, of normality, of consistency, of connection with the people who have gone before us in the faith, that we're reminded that the focus must be first and foremost on the people, of God, the people in the building, because that is the church, right? The future of Olivet Baptist Church is not tied to the building. It's tied to the people. God, God's focus and commitment is not on the building. It's on the people. And so that's our focus, too, as we remember God's great care and concern for his people. It gives us the Really, it gives us the hope and the encouragement as God shows this great care for his people that he will hold us fast, he will take care of us, that we uh, can be encouraged in that and continue to take care of one another as we take care of the church. And so we see this in this passage. And one other way, really maybe the last way, that we see in this passage of the people drifting is that they are letting the world seep into their priorities and their focus on the Lord's Day. 
because they were dishonoring the Sabbath. We thought about this a few weeks back in chapter 10 more specifically, but we remember that Sunday is the Lord's day. It's his day. We're supposed to honor him on it. And the command we have in the Bible, in the New Testament, for how to honor the Lord on the Lord's day is to gather together with the church. Hebrews 10.25. And so sometimes, just like in this passage, we need to shut the gates of our lives to wall off that time, so to speak, on Sunday so that we make sure that we do gather with the people of God. That we can, well, we can rest assured that if we do that, that the the world is still going to be sitting right outside the gate, right? They stayed right outside the gate waiting, just ready if you were going to open the gates and come back out and accept them back in, right? And that can be tempting to compromise and to, uh, to get a different focus on the Lord's day. But when we read this passage, we're reminded to be, to be firm, to be clear like Nehemiah was, that this is what we're doing to, to even be willing to fight to protect that time that we're going to gather with the people of God. And that idea of guarding the gates really applies to so many ways that, really, if we're not careful, the enemy will come in and will make his home, whether in us individually or as a church. We see that, again, with Tobiah. They let literally an enemy of the people. Tobiah was the one who was working against them as they were building the wall, and yet here at the end in this passage, we see he's living in the temple, in the house of God. The enemy is in the house of God. How did that happen? Well, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. Uh, We read in Ephesians about how Satan can get a foothold, can be at home in us when we're When we're letting anger and bitterness linger in us, unimposed, that that can give an opportunity to the devil. And so these these personal aspects of sin in our lives, if we're if we're just okay with them, if we're not addressing them, if we're letting them continue unimposed in our life, then the enemy will get comfortable in our lives. And that can apply not to just to us individually, but to us as a church as well. So we need to be focused and diligent to not let that happen, to be diligent, to be eliminating sin. As Ephesians said, we read in our passage, our scripture reading this morning, to, to shed light on that, to expose those works of darkness so that they cannot remain. And so all of this, this addressing of sin, this is what the people needed to work on. This is what Nehemiah addressed And really, Nehemiah shows great leadership in addressing this because he's committed to honoring the Lord and being a leader who's going to bring the the people back to honoring the Lord. And frankly, he took some drastic measures to do it. I mean, you probably caught it as we were reading it. He was uh, was not always gentle in how he did this. Uh, That's probably the the softest way to say that, right? He threw Tobiah out of the temple and he threw out his furniture out of the temple. It reminds us of Jesus cleansing the temple. He shut the gates of the city so that foreigners couldn't sell and then the foreigners who were camping by the gates, he told them that he would lay hands on them if they didn't leave. Uh, He confronted the people who had intermarried with pagans and he cursed them. He beat some of them. He pulled out some people's hair in verse 
25, right? We would not look at this and call this good leadership. I mean, we just need to acknowledge that. Uh, if someone did that today, that would be a problem, and people would call for their removal from leadership. So is that what Nehemiah is doing? Is he, is he actually showing good leadership? What is this? Is this just like an example of what he did, but not, not a prescription of what we should do? What, do? what do we learn from this? And we need to pay attention to this because, I mean, frankly, with failures of pastors in recent years, we think about this term that's been coined of, of spiritual abuse. And we got to think, is that what's going on? Is, is this something else? What is this? So we need to think carefully. So what is Nehemiah doing? How is he using his authority? Well, a couple things. One, I think we need to acknowledge that Nehemiah didn't kill them. I mean, that seems like an obvious thing. But when this happened before, in Numbers chapter 25, God himself wiped out 24,000 people when they intermarried with foreigners. Right, so that was God's standard. Uh, Nehemiah did not do that. So in that sense, even though he's harsh, you could call him very gentle, comparatively speaking. Uh, but we still need to think further about this, right? Nehemiah is using the tools at his disposal to get across the point that this is serious and it will destroy them and all the people. And there are things tied to uh, the Old Covenant. There are things tied to how Israel was in a proper sense, sort of a theonomy that are connected to how he's leading and how that's different than today. But we ask the question, does that mean that we today should literally beat people up when they don't follow God? Well, the answer is no, and here's why. The Bible gives us a process in the New Testament for what discipline looks like when a Christian isn't following God. For non-Christians, I mean, they're not Christians, right? They're they're, under, they're not under the church's authority. They're, they're in the hands of God. Like, we're not called to discipline non-Christians anyways. But for Christians, there is a process in the Bible for what that looks like. It's speaking the truth and love to that person. And then if the person doesn't repent, then what is the step? We don't kill people. We remove them from church membership. That's the New Testament process we see in 1 Corinthians and First and Second Timothy and Titus. That's not physical, and there's a reason for that. Because we understand that God, our God, is not like the God of Islam or other religions that forces people to follow him, but that when people's eyes are open to God and his glory, that people will not, they can't help but follow him. And so that's why Christianity is not a forced religion, but we uh, support religious freedom because we believe as people see God, they will be drawn to him. And so it doesn't have to be forced or coerced in that sense. But this is what we do learn from Nehemiah, that we must have this same attitude when it comes to sin, even if we don't take the same actions. What did Jesus tell us, right? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, that's a metaphor, right? Again, we're getting into, uh, should we do that physically? But no, that's a metaphor. But he's, he's getting the point across. If there is sin in your life, do what it takes to get rid of the sin. Sin is serious. It will send you to hell. Do what it takes to get rid of the sin. And so we must have the same mindset. And we see that mindset in Nehemiah vividly 
That sin is serious and it will destroy us. And so that's his focus and that must be our focus. We are focused on honoring God through, through seeking the holiness of the people of God. James 5.19 and 20 says it this way. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we need to follow this example, have the same zeal for the church of God. And this is where we'll end this morning because that phrase, the zeal for the, for the church of God, really reminds us of Jesus. Because Nehemiah had this zeal for the house of God. Well, who do we see ultimately have this greatest zeal for the house of God? It's Jesus. The, the writers connected that phrase to Jesus as he cleansed the temple, that Jesus is the one that Nehemiah was pointing us towards as Nehemiah sought the good and the holiness of the people of God. Jesus died to take away our sins and make us holy, right? He's committed to this. That is the gospel, that we can be made holy by him when we repent of our sins and we turn to him in faith, commit our lives to follow him, that he will make us blameless and spotless, that he's the standard, he's working everything together for our good so that we will look more and more like him, that he will not let us continue down the path of sin, that he started a work in us, and he will complete that work. He will not let us continue to go down that wrong path, but will turn us back. That is really the good news of Jesus that we're reminded of from this passage, that we need accountability. We need people in our lives who are willing to tell us when we're wrong. That is something that is good for us. But even when we have those people, we're reminded that ultimately this is the work of God in us. That the reason we're not going to fall away and make shipwreck of our faith is because Jesus has promised that he will keep us and hold us and continue to make us holy as we draw closer and closer to him and closer and closer to the end. And so we're reminded that we, really we pray a prayer of confession. God, forgive us for how we've drifted, how we've rebelled by loving the ways of the world and following the ways of the world more than your ways. And we pray, we pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God, thanking the Lord for his faithfulness that everything he's doing in our lives to turn us back to him, to not let us continue to go astray for, for cutting off sin in our lives and making us faithful. That this is what we remember that the Lord is doing, that as we are supposed to be committed to the, to the church of God, the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth, that Jesus has shown us the ultimate commitment to the church by loving her, by dying for her, that she might be made holy. And so this is Nehemiah 13. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you for this passage in the Bible. We thank you that all of your word is good for us, that you continue to teach us and equip us for everything we need for life and godliness. We pray that we will take it to heart, that we will take sin seriously, 
that we will know that when we drift into the ways of the world that it's not okay, that it will lead us to compromise our worship of you and it will compromise our holiness and compromise the people of God. So we pray that you will remind us of that, convict us of that, and continue to change us to make us holy, we pray. And we thank you that you do that work in us, that you are the good shepherd who leads us in this path, and that you will complete this work that you have started in us. Thank you for that, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.